1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
1: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get right to our next guest, William Houston, CIO of Bay Street Capital Holdings. So, William, do you prefer William or Bill? How are we going here? Yeah, William's fine. Awesome, great. So William, 60-40 portfolio, I grew up with that. That didn't work for me so well this year. What are you kind of doing there over at Bay Street in terms of allocating assets between equities, fixed income, maybe some commodities, maybe some alternatives? I mean, what do you do in a market environment like this? it's
3: not so much the allocation right now as much as what the market is anticipating. So, you know, as long as the Fed continues down this course of raising rates, we're going to see more of the same of what we're seeing in the market, you know, until yep. they're able to reverse course. Once the, this inflation has slowed down, regardless what someone's allocation is, they're going to be looking at a difficult, uh, a difficult path in the equities market.
2: So, um, It's not like a binary thing that um, I always think about it like that, either they're raising or they're cutting. But they could, I guess the market expectation is that they plateau at some point and just hold for a while. How do you see that going and how important is your Fed call to your investment strategy?
3: Yes, that's the right process, you know. The the market is pricing in the pace that we're going to see these these rate hikes. As you said, everyone's anticipating the seventy five basis points. And yes, as soon as that trend reverses course, you know we stop seeing this inversion in the yield curve, where you know investors are being actually rewarded at a higher rate on these on these shorter term, uh, we'll say like 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 yields as opposed to longer term reels. As long as that's the case, yeah, equities are going to perform poorly. Um, and, and that's where, that's what we're looking at for right now.
1: So what do you do? What do you tell your clients these days? Again, their, their Mm -hmm. bonds haven't worked for them. Their stocks Mm -hmm. haven't worked for them. I mean, unless they got Mm -hmm. a barrel of oil, you know, sitting in their apartment, what do Mm -hmm.
2: they do? Well, a lot of investors have also Mm -hmm. gone to cash in a very strong way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. What do you do? What are your cash balances and where do you put them to work? If you, if, and when you do.
3: So for a lot of folks that are rebalancing at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year, they would have already, you know, positioned themselves with some sort of cash allocation. We went into the year in January with 20% cash. Uh, with that, you know, we've still seen similar performance in in the market. We're still down about 14% uh, year to date, you know, with that 20% cash that's there that we've been able to be opportunistic with. Uh, You know, I would say for the next six months, the housing market is going to look soft. You know, Uh, housing also shot up over the last couple of years Uh, with rates as high as they are, though. You know, there's less offers that are coming in. That means there's going to be lower inventories, which means that prices are going to start coming down. So I would say for for people who are looking today, the smartest thing to do is to just wait. You know, a lot of banks have been announcing layoffs So just in general, the market is going to see some softness in the next six months, nine months. But that doesn't mean, you know, don't be alert, don't be diligent. It just means let's look around, you know, prepare for as these opportunities come up, as we anticipate these prices to come down.
2: William, I want to ask you about um, your life, your studies, and, you know, what you do out there on the left coast. Because I initially, you know, I saw your resume and was struck by how much you studied um, investment management at Wharton, industrial systems engineering at Georgia Tech, mathematics at Alabama, and classically trained pianist at Vanderbilt's Blair School of Music, which made me think about the fact that a lot of times musicians are so innovative and um, so successful in the world of business and, and on Wall Street. I just wonder what you think about that and how it's how it's affected you.
3: Mm. So I think, you know, no individual is is, able, is going to be able to outperform the market. You know, fortunately for me, I've been able to surround myself with other individuals from very diverse backgrounds. And, you know, it's that diversity of thought and this concept around idea flow. Uh, a friend of mine at the Stanford D School, he actually just released a book on, you know, how to come up with uh, good ideas, you know. And, and the truth to that is, When you're looking at an investment opportunity, everyone knows that it's art, you know, part art, part science. But the best ideas actually come from actually the abundance of ideas, you know. So something that we do internally as a team is speak through the opportunities that we're looking at, speak through what's going on in the market, but also be comfortable to go through as many ideas as possible as a team so that we can – so that we can field test these options that are coming up and actually through trial and error, see well, what is the best option to 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 take in the in the in the in the thing that we're experiencing at that at that moment.
1: So William, what's you know what do you think you really bring what do you try to bring to your clients in terms of value, service, insight, you know what do you think is most important that you bring to your clients?
3: Yeah, so something we've always stood behind is investing through the lens of history, right? So we want to be able to look at an opportunity. We want to help investors see around the corner. Uh, we want to prevent any emotional decision-making. Uh, so for us, you know, we want to be able to see what's going on. And when market sentiment is is where it is today, be able to explain the position that we're in. Uh, and also, you know, again, even though we, we're only in 20% cash, instead of going back hindsight and trying to make Uh, an impulsive decision say okay this is where we're positioned, and over the long term uh, you know over time equity markets will pull back up we can speak investors through this next six to nine months that we see coming right uh, so that they're able to have a little rest and peace of mind as we as we step into it all
1: right good stuff hey William thanks so much for joining us really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day to chat with us William Houston CIO of Bay Street Capital Holdings and
2: one of Investopedia's top 100 most influential advisors of 2022. That's the second year in a row he's been nominated for that prestigious award.
1: we got a Federal Reserve. They're going to be chatting with us on Wednesday. Bloomberg, of course, will have full coverage of our Federal Reserve and uh, the press conferences and all that good stuff. But the question is, okay, you're raising interest rates. Are you going to push this economy into a recession? Let's check in with somebody who thinks about this stuff for a living, Marcus Schomer, chief economist at Pine Bridge Investments. Marcus, what's your recession call with a Federal Reserve that seems pretty you know, hell-bent on kind of getting its handle on inflation?
4: Uh, it's really hard to to get uh, to get your head around the recession call forecast right now. Um, because it depends a little bit what it, it's all about depending what what you think the Fed will do, as opposed to what the Fed should do, right? If you really think they're hell-bent on a recession, if you really think they're so ignorant that they don't see how the inflation environment is turning and is changing rapidly over the last couple of months, if they really if you really believe they're so ignorant. That they're not see that, then um, if we do get a recession next year, it's all about them, and it will be you know, the second uh, major policy error after last year getting the inflation story completely wrong. Uh, they may get the inflation story completely wrong again and push the economy into a recession next year. So um, I'm I'm sticking I'm sticking out with the non-recession forecast because I maybe somewhat naively believe they will get some some sort of economic sense uh, huh. over the next six months or so, realize where we are and stop this kind of ridiculous hawkishness that's well, coming out of every FOMC member right now uh, and is pushing up expectations for rate higher and higher and well, higher.
2: Marcus, I love your take because, um, of course, the Fed is going to play it as hawkish as possible. They want to bring inflation expectations down, and the only way to do that is to convince everybody in America or in the world, and that means market participants too, that they will do everything they have to do to crush inflation. Now, that doesn't mean they're actually going to do it. It doesn't mean they're actually going to ignore a recession, high unemployment, you know, um, unrest in the streets, uh, it, just in order to bring this number that's already coming down down, but they have to put on that hawkish um, uh, uh, pl- show. Is that how you think it's going to work? That they're that they're actually they actually are going to be smart enough or, or um, sensitive enough to, if not turn around, at least pause when we start to get uninfl- unemployment really ticking up?
4: You're you, you obviously right in your, your description there, um, but inflation expectations are not rising, right? Inflation expectations. True. UMish numbers
2: were very uh, were very good. yet. Yeah, yeah, uh, last week. turned months ago. Yeah.
4: You Mish, look at the New York Fed has another one. Right. The New York Fed has a three-year uh, inflation outlook number, inflation expectations number. There, that's been turning. Tips. Num- the tips uh, uh, inflation forecast has turned. I mean, I don't see any indicator that suggests inflation expectations are rising. but That's the other problem. Um, I, I'm kind of very but much. But they have aware to continue
2: to to talk hawkish, right? Otherwise, that turns back around.
4: No, it wouldn't. I don't, I don't think so. inflation expectations are not driven by what the Fed says. Inflation expectations are driven by what people see on the street, and you know what they're seeing. They're seeing falling gas prices, and they're seeing certainly a reduction in the upward pressure in prices in other areas. And if you look at look at things like in, like import prices, import prices, I think already point to the next deflationary impulse that's coming because the dollar is super strong and the rest of the world is slowing much harder than the U.S. Everything we import right now is going down in prices. And I think that 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 deflationary impulse will only intensify in the next six months. Um, So I don't see but the Fed still sees the problem. It looks at core CPI, which is a terrible number to look at, we should start looking at CPI without housing because housing is obscuring the turn right now, and it is all about the turn and getting confidence in the turn. Once inflation turns, it has been my view for a while that the, then the debate will change from how high to how fast will we get to two percent, and that's a very different kind of discussion.
2: Well, isn't it hard to leave out rents? That's such a sticky component we hear of inflation, but and it is. it's been out it of control right. on the upside.
4: So it isn't a sticky component. It isn't. It's only sticky because the way it works, right? Because the way they do it, they 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 they, uh, include rents and CPI is by taking the very latest information on rent and only using 20% of that for the rental. Uh, component of CPI. Because you know what? Nobody rents a new home every month, right? And nobody buys a house every month. So housing really shouldn't be in there. What should be in CPI should be things that you basically buy every month or every, every other month or so. You can notice the prices going up or down. But things that you buy only every five years or every two years shouldn't really be in the CPI. Or at least we should kind of adjust the CPI for the frequency of a transaction of that product. And the only thing that's going to still up right now—well, it's not exactly true—but the one thing that's going up right now, making everybody worried, is housing, right. which is already going down. That's we know housing over. is yep. collapsing right now. Right? Yep. House prices are not going up anymore, and rents are not going up anymore either. So,
1: oh, um, come to New York City. Right? Really- I was going to say
2: that—that's not the case in New York
1: City. But, <laughs> um, yep, I no, guess- but housing is—you uh, know—rolling over. We got uh, mortgage rates over six percent. Marcus Schomer, thanks so much for joining us. There, Marcus Schomer chief economist for Pine Bridge Investments. I think he, he is kind of in that Vince Signorella camp, which is, hey, man, inflation's rolling over. If I'm the Federal Reserve, I can afford the pause. If not now, then maybe the next time. But uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. Here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers radio studio, we got a wall of video screens for all the networks kind of up in front of us. And just seeing some video of the Queen's Coffin now is arriving at Windsor Castle. Uh, this huge, huge procession lined with just throngs of people. Uh, just extraordinary uh, kind of a day here. And I was looking at the schedule, Matt. It starts at 6.30 a.m. this morning the um, you know, some of these uh, 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 rights and events and doesn't end until 730 this evening. So a long day for all involved. And, and we get a, a sense of what's going on there on the ground. We bring in Leanne Garrance She's a radio anchor and producer for for Bloomberg News in London. Leanne, thanks so much for, for taking the time to join us. I'd love to just get your your view of kind of how the day has unfolded so far uh, in London.
5: Of course. Um, so this morning I was um, down at Westminster Abbey and, you know, the queue that we've seen here in London has been somewhat of a phenomenon. Just hundreds of thousands of people have lined the streets to see the Queen lying in state, And I spoke to some of the last people to enter that great Westminster Hall to say their final goodbyes today. And they've been waiting in the queue for 13 hours shortly after that. Mm. The queue was closed about 6.30am and then... We also saw the queen loaded onto the gun carriage, and she was pulled by members and sailors um, from the military here to Westminster Abbey, which is just eight minutes um, away. And I witnessed that, and it was a moment of raw emotion. We've seen um, pageantry and pomp and ceremony and just a feeling of emotion in London.
2: The gun carriage is so cool. So here's the deal with the gun carriage. Basically, um, it is an actual carriage for a 12-pound gun that was built, I think, in the late 1800s. And when Queen Victoria died, um, they went to pull it with horses, but the funeral was in February and it was too cold. The horses were freaking out. So they had, um, it was actually Dickie's father uh, Louis Mountbatten, the original Louis Mountbatten, who said, "You know what? We're gonna pull this ourselves." And they had like a hundred guys get out there. kidding. And pull it. And ever since then, it's become an institution in yep. royal funerals. Um, so cool. Now they're marching into uh, uh, Windsor, Windsor Castle. Yep. It's gigantic. <laughs> I never noticed how big it is. I know. It's a big. I crypt. believe it is the biggest royal palace that's still inhabited by kings and queens in the whole world. Have you been there, Le- Leanne?
5: I have been there, and I do actually spend a lot of time in Windsor. It's one of my favourite places here in the UK, and it was actually one of the Queen's favourite places. She loved it, and during the pandemic, it was called the Windsor Bubble, where she spent a long time with her former husband and also with the staff of Windsor Castle and that's because as we know the Queen always loved to be outdoors she loved to walk her corgis and Mm. also have access to the horses and that's like you said Windsor Castle is the place where that happens and I could not believe just the volume of people that have lined the long walk to see the Queen and as a hearse made away we saw all the roses that had been thrown onto the front of it and this for a lot of the British people, is the last time we will really see Her Majesty. She now will go into a service at four o'clock. That's a committal service, and then later on this evening, she'll have a private burial with her family, and the cameras will not be watching any of that.
2: You know, you know, um, she mentions the Queen's late husband, the late Queen's late husband, Prince Philip. He was Dickie's nephew, Dickie Mountbatten. So, and I watch The Crown. I did a deep dive into this today. Apparently, Dickie tried to get Prince Charles to marry his granddaughter. I mean, they're all related anyway, yep. but they wanted to get even more interrelated, I guess. Oh, boy. Um, King Charles now, yes. the third. Leanne, what, what's the um, what's the feeling? Because I know there has have been times in the past when people wanted him to abdicate and uh, pass the throne straight on to William. He's been very vocal about certain um issues like climate change, which made him for for some time unpopular. And now I imagine that um, the left has to at least give him points for that. How is he being seen now that he's sitting on the throne, so to speak?
5: Well, I think, first of all, he has big shoes to follow. That's undoubted. His mother reigned over this country for seven decades, and she's much loved. But one thing that King Charles has done, and it's won the people's hearts is as soon as he realized that he was to come to the throne, he went to all four corners of the UK and he visited his whole kingdom. He started off in Scotland, he went then to Northern Ireland, he went to Wales, and of course we've seen him here in England. He's been out and about shaking people's hands, connecting with everybody who's come out to pay their respects to their mother. We've also seen an emotional speech given by him thanking his mother and saying, I'm going to carry on the legacy. I'm going to carry on the service. So really, we see Prince um, King Charles, I always want to say Prince Charles, right. King Charles III, I know, it's always on the forefront of my mind, but we see King Charles III really coming out and giving people that reassurance that we need after seven decades. I can't remember another queen, yep. most of my friends. <laughs> of course so you can <laughs> you know, so he's really gone out and given the reassurance to the whole of the United Kingdom, that he's here to carry on his mother's legacy, and he has worked nonstop, and so many people have recognized that and also felt a real sense for him because he's mourning the loss of a mother. this
2: Well, first of all, um, that's terrible. I don't want to make light of that at all. It's a tragedy. Everyone loved her, and of course, her children for for their loss. Uh, I am sorry. Having said that. This has to be an incredible PR campaign for the United Kingdom because yep. for 10 days, we've all followed along. We've all watched. You know, if you haven't been there, you probably want to go and check it out. If you have, you may want to go back. I mean, um, I, in a way, this has to kind of prove how important the royals are to uh to tourism dollars, right, Leanne? There must be an influx of people who, who want to go to the UK to pay their respects and to, and to check it out.
5: I have never seen London so busy. I've almost not known what to do with myself. (laughs) People have come in from all over the world. And I've actually gone and visited the queue a few times and reported from the queue. And many people I met were foreign, who had flown into the country, who said the Queen had always struck a chord with them, especially people from the US. They said, we don't have this pomp and pageantry. And it's something that we really wanted to be immersed in and involved in. we loved the queen from afar and you are right it is something that has just brought the light here to the uk and today i have a feeling and i'm sure many people would agree with me everything almost went seamlessly it yep. has been so well rehearsed it yep. has been so well practiced the queen made a lot of those approvals for the right. service that we saw today and i feel like London and yes. the U.K. have done themselves justice.
1: Absolutely agree. Uh, Leanne, we're going to have you back later in the program. That's how important this stuff is and how interesting and compelling it is. Leanne Cairns from Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's Monday. It's eleven eighteen ish. That means we talk ETFs, and when we do that, we do it with Katie Greifeld, cross asset reporter for Bloomberg News. N A N C K R U Z. What kind of ETFs? Are Nance these? and Cruz. Oh,
6: I guess
2: the, I get yeah.
6: it. Okay. The world has been waiting for these filings. So, if you haven't guessed, so these are. Filings, they haven't been launched yet, but filings for ETFs that would track the personal portfolios of members of Congress and their families and their dependent children. Oh because? Because.
2: Members was. of Congress tend, tend to beat the S&P by a mile. Who really? knows where they get that kind of investing edge? You <laughs> that- know, But it's an, it's the acumen that you need to become a good politician sure. just being great at investing.
6: Uh, we have Eric Balchunas. He actually crunched numbers uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Which did prove that point that these portfolios do tend to outperform. Whether or not it's going to be like a great portfolio, something you would actually want to invest in, it's almost guaranteed to generate buzz. Because obviously there's been a lot of controversy.
2: when you're talking, okay, so people of our age here, the Mm -hmm. things we want to invest in are things that make the most money.
6: Yeah, for sure. It's different (laughs)
2: with people in your generation who, who want, want to, do to invest in. Yeah.
6: What, a over generalization. <laughs> um, but let me tell you about the methodology because okay. the financial world and financial Twitter especially has been waiting for someone to try to do this. The fact that these filings finally landed, uh, sort of went viral, but in any case, so they're going to look at disclosures members of congress have to disclose any transactions they make valued more than a thousand dollars within 45 days so you do run the risk of missing those short-term trades but you can see what their long-term holdings are and you can construct a portfolio around 500 to 600 names and that's what this issuer is trying to do
1: what's give me just a sense of how many ETFs come to market on a weekly basis? It seems like every time you come in here, you've got more new, crazy I names. I Is the cost of launching an ETF like next to nothing?
6: It would appear that way. The cost to file an ETF certainly uh, doesn't cost very much. We see so many interesting filings. The reality is that if you look at the ETF market at this point, you have... 3,000 ETFs in the US, just the US. Um, there's not a lot of white space. It's a space $9 yet. trillion
2: dollar market.
6: Exactly. You guys exactly. should
2: have a TV show
1: about it. You yeah. have a, big whole of a market. TV show
6: about it. Issuers have to get creative to find any sort of white space, any area of that $9 trillion industry that isn't saturated. And if these actually come to pass, they will be the only existing ETFs on the market that are trying to do this.
2: Well, but these to me, make the most sense of all of everything, because um, if you a lot of people get angry about the fact that members of Congress are investing and very cynical people think, hey, they're using their position of power
0: mm-hmm.
2: really? to make a profit, um, right. you know, and now you can do it along with them. Yeah, that makes sense. So the only problem I have is with the disclosures. Um, as a member of Congress, you only have to disclose your investments within a, I think, a forty-five day period. Exactly. Is it exactly? So are those laws going to change? Is this going to stay legal?
6: Well, it's interesting. There was this big bipartisan push last year to basically change the laws, require more disclosures, or maybe make it so that lawmakers would only be able to invest in S&P 500 tracking funds or index tracking funds, which a lot of corporate employees, those are the restrictions we're under. We're on our show going to hear from Emily Wilkins. Uh, She's a congressional and government reporter at Bloomberg News about those efforts, because again, it was a big bipartisan sort of unity moment. But it seems like that push is largely stalled. I don't think there's been any action on the legislative front.
1: Funds flow. People still putting the money in. Oh, here's the thing I want to talk. Yeah, about. converting mutual funds. Like Matt and I grew up with mutual funds. You put Snore. the Fidelity, you know, contra fund the Fidelity. I mean, not think about how re- revolutionary they were at the time. Right? Oh yes, yeah. so Jack everybody, Bogle is a
2: man, a myth, a legend who changed the way we invest. But now mutual yeah. funds are
1: converting to ETFs, right?
6: It is a growing trend. The first happened about two years ago. Honestly, I think it's slowed down a little bit. Uh, Some proponents in the ETF industry would tell you that it's still growing. Uh, But we did have Newberger Berman. They did convert earlier this month uh, some of their mutual funds into an ETF. This trend, it's expected to grow to basically a $1 trillion wave. We're not close to that point yet, but if you look at the flow of funds, new money or money coming into the ecosystem, it's all, it's like a zero sum sort Uh, of flow picture, but in terms of issuers actually converting their mutual fund into ETFs, people think there's a lot more runway, but you have to consider the fact that mutual funds are the preferred structure for retirement plans for four hundred one k's. So there's incentive to convert, but there's also plenty of reasons to stay in that specific structure.
1: 1 p.m. Wall Street time. What are you and Matt going to be up to?
6: We're going to talk, I think, a lot about the uh, Congressional Trading ETFs. Again, just filings. They haven't launched yet. Uh, That would probably take until November. So we're also going to talk to Invesco's Head of Thematic Research. Uh, Theme ETFs, it's been a little bit of a struggle to attract the same magnitude of flows that we saw in some of the years past. I don't know if you guys heard, but we keep toggling in and out of a bear market. That tends to be (laughs) bad news for themes, but they do have some winners there, including the PBJ. ETF. It's a food and beverage ETF. I'm excited to dig in.
2: Themes are different than
6: factors? They are. They are. OK.
2: How? I don't know.
6: Momentum, quality, those are factors. Inflation, robotics, those uh, that's- are more Thank themes. you. Okay. All right. She's smart. I'm yeah. ready.
1: That's yeah. why we have her on the program. Haverford College. That's a really <laughs> good college, by the way. On the main line. Yes, the main line. Katie Greifeld, cross asset reporter for uh, Bloomberg News.
2: I want to bring in now Christoph Rauwald. He is the Frankfurt Bureau Chief, and he is my go-to source okay. on anything VW-related. And then, because he's my go-to source on Volkswagen, that means he's automatically yep. my go-to source on Porsche, Bentley, Audi, Bugatti, Skoda. Those are some names. Seat. The Bugatti's uh, the one, right? Ducati. Like, like if- Ducati's my own thing, but... Yeah, Bugatti is a great, really cool company. Anyway, Christoph, thanks so much for joining us. Paul and I um, both noticed the same thing when we saw the initial stories coming out over the weekend. Porsche is going now for a much lower valuation than we thought. I mean, $10 billion lopped off the valuation, now 70 to 75 rather than 85. Why is that?
7: Yeah, hi, Matt. Uh, I think think the... It, it basically boils down to the fact that actually they they, they have been looking at a, at a very broad range of different valuations. When you like like uh, sort of like look a few weeks back. Uh, we've had like uh, the number of like 85 billion floating around. Some some analysts actually speculate it might be as worth as much as 100 billion. Uh, and then our last Thursday or Friday was uh, we saw an HSBC note out that basically said, oh no, it's like gonna it's gonna be worth much less. Basically, they they were looking at about 45 to 50 billion. So uh, I think they 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 sit pretty much right in the middle of like the valuation, which has been uh, basically discussed through a pretty broad range. So I I do think they they, they try really hard to not not push too hard from a pricing perspective and uh yeah aim for something that sits pretty much right in the middle of the it's gonna be impossible
2: to get this is my first thought is um you know were i to if i were allowed to invest in this obviously i would back up the truck and buy as many shares as i could i'd have to call every broker i know to try and get some syndicate how are they gonna deal with that kind of demand
7: yeah, they basically uh, uh, have like a group of banks that is targeting specifically institutional investors. Four of the big anchor investors have been out there already, have been uh, uh, announced and we reported them before. But they also lined up a number of banks, Deutsche Bank being one of them, who are specifically targeting, targeting retail customers. Because they do have a pretty sort of affluent group of customers that are very like, loyal to the brand, have been driving Porsches for a couple of years or decades, maybe are members of like a Porsche club. So that's definitely a group of yeah.
1: uh, potential investors as well.
2: All right. So the, the anchor investors, by the way, are like uh, the Saudis. The Saudi, right. Um, Nor- Nor- Norway.
1: Norges. Norway. Nor- they have the biggest. Who, who, yeah. who, who
2: else are the uh, big anchor investors? Remind us.
7: Uh, yeah, it was it was uh, Norgas, the, the the sovereign wealth fund from uh, from Norway. Then Qatar was uh, oh. was was one uh, was another investor. Uh, T Rowe is on board. Uh, ADQ, I think. Uh, so yeah, number number of like pretty pretty established names out there.
1: Now I understand there's some weird family dynamics going on here, and this IPO no. will address some of it. I'm not sure if you can do this in a simplified version but it's, the hard, porsche to do, it's family. hard to do that in a book yeah the porsche family and the peach is it peak? peach? peach peach well, i can't even pronounce it correctly christoph can you
2: give it a shot
7: yeah uh, the, the the name is is it pronounced uh peach and uh yes I'll, I'll i'll do my best it's a nice challenge to wrap that up in a few seconds and i'll, I'll write that book and send it to you matt right after the show wraps up uh thing is basically they they lost direct control over what used to be their family uh, business just over a decade ago back in the days Porsche's previous management is tried to to take over the much larger Volkswagen group the whole thing basically like ran out of funding during the debt crisis and as part of like a pretty complex deal for Porsche AG the sports car business was folded into Volkswagen and now, this IPO allows the family to regain some direct influence. They don't go uh, at Porsche, at the sports corporation, they don't get like full control, yep. but they will receive a blocking minority of 25% of the voting stock in that sports car
1: business. When's this deal going to happen? Is this this week, this month? What's the timing?
7: Uh, we've uh, just heard that the uh, German financial market regulator BaFin has uh, signed off on the on the prospectus pro, on the on the IPO prospectus, so that should land uh, at some point later uh, uh, this this afternoon in the coming hours. And uh, yeah, basically then it then the preparation, the preparations are going to continue, and the goal is that the first day of trading will be September
2: 29th. It's pretty exciting. Um, the only thing that is kind of a bummer for me and probably cool for Christoph is that they're doing it on the Frankfurt Börse mm. which is I mean <laughs> so lame no offense Christoph but <laughs> there's nobody that even works there like why not do it on the New York Stock Exchange where there's real pomp and uh, uh and, and, and 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 celebration
7: yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I guess I'm totally biased there because like the Frankfurt Stock Exchange is just like a walk from our office. So I'm, I'm all for it, Matt. Uh, and yeah, I guess we have to bring you back to Germany, I guess.
1: Christoph, are they going to do a, like a road show, like a, go to New York, go to London, do that kind of thing?
7: well they have been on a pretty extensive roadshow okay, okay. over the past few uh well months really uh they've been to to Boston to New York to London yep. uh, they've been touring asia so uh they've they've really like traveled the globe basically okay. but they decided yeah it's 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 a germany com- it's a german company they want to be they wanted to be listed in germany so and that's basically why they picked frankfurt
1: all right good stuff now, you know, maybe maybe we'll send matt over there for that that could be a good little uh Bloomberg Markets. Yeah, we'll send, we'll send them your way. Christoph Ravald, uh, Bureau Chief, Frankfurt, Munich, pretty much all of Germany uh, for Bloomberg News. He kind of keeps us on top of what's happening uh, in Germany. And again, this IPO of Porsche uh, looking to raise as much as 9.4 billion euros.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.